news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Before we begin today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that the April Beta Read matchup is now open for registration. If you're interested in getting fresh eyes on your pages, go to my website, biancamaray.com, go to the Beta Read page, and you will find more information there on how to sign up. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hook segment. Carly and Cece are each looking at two queries today. And as per usual, we're going to dive straight in. Carly, will you kick us off? Dear Carly, thank you for all you do to help aspiring authors. I love listening to the shit no one tells you about writing, and I'm thrilled to be participating in your deep dive workshop series. In a recent interview with the podcast Lit Match, you said you're looking for unique commercial fiction with a strong point of view. I think you'll like my debut novel, Loose Lips Sink Ships a dual POV, 87,000-word contemporary romance. My story will appeal to readers who enjoy the Capitol Hill setting in Devin Daniels' Meet You in the Middle and rooted for the caustic, crusading heroine in Ashley Winstead's Fool Me Once. Why do men weaponize women's ambition? Julia Turner won't apologize for putting her career first. She's only a couple of chess moves away from becoming the youngest chief of staff on Capitol Hill, proving that you don't need connections or a penis to get ahead. When anti-abortion billionaires target her pro-choice boss, her re-election is imperiled. Julia has two months to save the senator's campaign and her job by passing universal preschool legislation. There is a narrow path to victory, and she can't afford to be distracted when her ex returns to D.C. Henry Stevens attended grad school to be a serious journalist, not report on gossip at society parties. He's desperate to prove he's more than a pretty face. Five years after dumping Julia via text, he's assigned a story on her boss. He praises his chance to rekindle their relationship and cover real news. Through karaoke contests, five-minute dates, one minor kitchen fire, Henry and Julia learn to love and trust each other again. But when Henry uncovers evidence that the senator's husband has engaged in insider trading, he must choose to save Julia's job or his own. Content note, the full manuscript contains non-graphic descriptions of abortion and sexual assault. I've worked in politics for 20 years, including for Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senator Dianne Feinstein. Currently, I work as UC Berkeley's lobbyist and am an elected school board trustee. 
I've taken creative writing courses at UC Berkeley and several workshops from your colleague, Cece Lira. I'm a member of the Bay Area Romance Writers League of Romance Writers and Women's Fiction Writers Association, as well as part of a beta reading group through your podcast. I live in Marin County, California with my Irish immigrant husband, our two silly, curious kids, and plants that I forget to water. May I send you my full manuscript? Thanks for your consideration. Sincerely, Gina Banks. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, that sounds quite interesting. Right, what was the word count there and what was your take on that? All right, so this one comes in at about 409, so just over 400 words here. I'm going to start with the title, Loose Lips Sink Ships. Okay, this is a tongue twister. Having your agent, editor, PR person, sales rep, bookseller, podcast host say this title again and again is really hard. So I'm really worried you're not setting yourself up for success if people are going to stumble through your title. We say titles hundreds of times, if not thousands of times, and you have to say it out loud too. And hopefully you read your query out loud to yourself so so you could hear it. I found myself stumbling and I'd make a note to myself to like say this very, you know, enunciate very clearly. So really, really think about that. I don't think you're setting yourself up for success with that title, personally. I would cut the rhetorical, why do men weaponize women's ambition, question mark. Just cut this. Start with Julia Turner. Won't apologize. That's what I would do. So I feel very conflicted about this because these feminist issues aren't going away. And yet I'm worried there's not a fresh enough take on this. I mean, I like the way that this query develops and I really like the opening pages and we're going to get to that later, obviously. I don't know that the, just the line about like, she won't apologize for putting her career first, that kind of stuff. I'm like, is that part fresh? I don't know that 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 I was just questioning. And maybe again, that's just my personal opinion. I really always just want to focus on what is the freshest possible angle here, especially at the top of the query letter. So another thing is, is this too real life? With a lot of romances, sometimes there is a level of like, wanting to step outside of ourselves and, and be a little bit escapist so this is a a very much contemporary contemporary romance which they said in the query letter so that makes sense again but agents will have their own opinions about how contemporary they want their contemporary romance plot question why did he dump her and why does he want to rekindle the relationship that was a bit of a question mark i think it's probably intentional that you kind of left us on a bit of a cliffhanger there but that was something that was uh standing out to me overall i i really like it as i said this, this grew on me so much as it went along but I think the beginning could probably use a little bit of work. I don't think we need the content note here because it's it's non-graphic. I don't know. I, I just don't think we need it here. So I, if you do want to include this content note, which of course that would be very considerate of you, I would just put it at the top of the synopsis. I don't think it actually needs to go in the query letter in this in this case. But I love the bio. You know, I love that you have some real world knowledge here. Um, and I think that that goes a long way. Thank you, Carly. Okay, what was in those opening pages? All right, so our opening pages. So we meet our character, Julia. She is on a date, and the date is going very badly. He is manslating, talking, 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 not letting her kind of have any say in the matter. It takes him 35 minutes to ask her a question. So this date is kind of failing on all accounts, and she's like, I don't care. I just want to have this nice dinner at this nice restaurant and ignore this dud that's across the table from me. Then she gets a call from her boss. So she's like, I had my phone on silent. Why is this kind of ringing through? Only emergencies ring through. And it's like, oh, it's an emergency. It's her boss. So she like bails on the guy and he's obviously disgruntled. She takes the call. Her boss needs her to present something at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, a very important bill on childcare universal child care. So she's like, okay, goes home, leaves the guy. And she's like, okay, got to get ready for a very big, important day at work, which is passing legislation of universal child care. So yeah, those are our pages. Awesome. Okay. What was your take on them? Okay. Overall, as I said, when I was talking about the query letter, I actually really, really love these pages. What I don't like is the first line. The first line's got to go. You guys know they're on the date, right? And she goes, my date had shit in his teeth. I'm like, literal like you know i'm like no (laughs) so cc's giving me the we gotta cut that yeah we gotta cut that line just start with it was a bold choice to eat a dish with spinach on the first date or just come up with a new line because that one that one isn't working for us the other thing is that so we have this first kind of opening paragraph setting the tone here for the fact that she's on the date the second paragraph starts with dialogue which says so as I was saying, cryptocurrency is a digital asset. So it's this guy like kind of going off. But if he was having a monologue, he wouldn't say, so as I was saying, right? Like if he's not in conversation with somebody or like, again, our female character wasn't speaking or a waitress or a waiter hadn't come by, why would he say, so as I was saying? That really to me was like, you're doing that for the reader. And that's not a good thing because you're showing your cards. So just like have him blather on like cryptocurrency is a digital asset, blah, 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 right? Okay. Okay. 
He also says, again, we're supposed to know this guy's a dud, obviously. <laughs> Everybody knows my feelings about guys who are duds in the opening pages. But he has a line that says, women don't know anything about cryptocurrency. I'm like, is that true? Like, I, I don't say all women know the details of cryptocurrency. I certainly couldn't explain it to you. But we know what cryptocurrency is and the fact that it exists. Because celebrities last year, like you couldn't go on Instagram or watch YouTube without Reese Witherspoon telling us about how we need to buy cryptocurrency. So I don't think that women don't know cryptocurrency exists. But yes, maybe maybe all humans really can't explain cryptocurrency. So I don't know. I thought that was a bit of a, hmm, I don't think we need that. Anytime something pulls me out of the story, it gives me these big question marks, of course. Okay. After that, though, I have a lot of notes like, great, love this, love that. So yeah, I really think we hit our stride quickly, which is great. So again, this person will see my notes about how much I really enjoyed it. I think we really learn a lot in these opening pages. And again, we're moving things forward with her career and we're, we're learning things on this date. Because I think date scenes have a tendency to be like quiet scenes, right? It's just two people sitting at a table and how average is that, right? But I think we learn a lot in these opening scenes, which is great. Again, she she bails on him. We learn a lot about her and her career. I, I think the first page is really the only page I have notes on. Other than that, I think it's pretty strong. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, will you read us your second query letter? Dear Ms. Waters, thank you for everything that you, Bianca, and Cece do for aspiring writers. I listen to the shit no one tells you about writing the second it drops every week. During one episode, you mentioned you're always on the lookout for characters with interesting careers. So I'm reaching out to you with Air, an 87,000 word contemporary romance that combines the reboot appeal of The Emma Project by Sonali Dev and the behind the scenes insight of Well Met by Jen DeLuca and the warm heart of Flying Solo by Linda Holmes. 22-year-old costume assistant Leah Eyre wants to stretch her talents to the limits, but her boss at Lowood Players won't let her do more than hem and clean. So when she lands her dream job as a costume director for the reopening of Thornfield Theatre after a deadly fire, she's determined to make the most creative ensembles Seattle has ever seen. Except she can't stop thinking about Alexander Rochester, the mercurial director of Bluebeard, Be Bold. Alexander is hiding something she's sure of it. His explanations of the strange sounds from the theater's addict and dangerous accidents during rehearsals leave much to be desired. Unlike his captivating personality and the way he draws out her best work without even trying. And those dark eyes of his. But when Leah learns what's truly hidden at Thornfield, she must choose between her dreams and her conscience. I've adapted Jane Eyre because I adore it, even as I wrestle with the ways it presents its world. I first read the novel while huddled in the wings at the community theater where I grew up. It's plain heroine who stands by her ideals, sees my imagination, and has yet to let go. My well-thumbed copy of Jane Eyre came with me to Colorado College, where I was elected Phi Beta Kappa and graduated Magna Cum Laude, and has continued to accompany me on my subsequent adventures, even when I lived on a sailboat. It sits on my desk now as I write to you. Thank you for your time and consideration. I've copied the first five pages below. May I send you the full manuscript? Warmly, Stephanie Ronco. Thank you, Carly. Okay, word count, and what did you think of that? So this one comes in at 360 words. Love this word count. Love it. Great. So this is really interesting, right? So a retelling of something that is well-worn, loved for a reason. I mean, a stand can stand the test of time. We're talking like a long time, right? So there's there's a reason this this plot works. And when it's recreated really well, that's great. So I actually, I don't see any issues with this. I have literally zero notes because again, you are taking something that has worked before and bringing it into the modern world. I think what you're going to come up against here is just whether an agent wants to represent a recreation. I think if there is an agent who loves Shane Eyre, if there's an agent who uh, has success selling retellings and recreations, I think you're going to find some success. I just think the only hurdle is going to be, yeah, whether whether agents kind of just want want to work in that space, because I actually think it's a really great query and, and I don't have any notes. The only kind of note I had was around the author bio. I particularly don't don't care about the Phi Beta Kappa graduated Magna Cum Laude personally, if that is something that you feel really strong with in terms of keeping it in there. And, you know, other agents always feel differently about things. I think that line could probably just be struck, but, um, but it's not overly lengthy. So feel free to keep that in. And I, I really think you did a great job here. Thank you, Carly. Okay. What was in those opening pages? 
Okay, so we start with our main character. She's at work. She's a costume designer. She is taking a lunch break. So she had to, she usually has her lunch breaks in her car, but she forgot a notebook where she does her sketching for costume design. So she goes back inside. She overhears a conversation between the kind of theater director and the existing kind of head of the department of costume design. And they are talking poorly about her. She's calling her a hack and and the male kind of theater director isn't standing up for her. So she's just really upset. So she runs back to her car and she calls her best friend and her best friend had just moved to New York City and we know that she's in Seattle so we know they're far apart and she's kind of explaining what went wrong and that she's not a hack and kind of giving her a a pump up call and our main character she's upset obviously just kind of finishes her lunch in her car and then kind of has to figure out her next steps. Thank you Carly sounds like there's quite a bit of conflict on the page there so what was your take on that? Yes so this first line I really like which is I never should have gone back for that notebook. Love that, right? We have the suspense of like, why not? The only thing I think could have been better because there's like, there's another thing that comes up later where she's like, this was my second mistake could be like, I made two mistakes that morning. The first was I should have never gone back for that notebook because the next paragraph you say and the second mistake I made, et cetera. So that was the only thing. I mean, I really liked the line. That was the only thing that I was like, oh, maybe we could pump it up a little bit. That's just my take, of course. So my next note is around a couple of things. So first kind of a, a point of plot here is that she goes back into the building and says that she hushed voices come from the room I abandoned. I stopped at the door to listen. And she says, this was my second mistake. And then she describes what she witnesses in the room. And I'm like, was the door open? Because there's no mention of the door being open. And so if the door was open, she would obviously be able to see, but then they could see her. But if she's only hearing them, it says her spindly fingers scraped against the flannel of his shirt as she poked his chest for emphasis. Meaning like, is she seeing through the wall in terms of like how these characters are physically interacting? How is she seeing them? I don't know. I just had a very like logistical set direction question in terms of how this is being witnessed. So that's just something to make a note of. My next big picture note here is I'm concerned that you are carrying a bit of the original way of speaking from Jane Eyre into this new book, meaning like things are a little bit stilted. There's certain things that doesn't seem natural. There's certain things that seem a little bit melodramatic. I know these are theater people and theater people are can be very melodramatic. So that I understand. They're really doubling down on the fact of like calling her a hack. And like, obviously, like that's probably the, again, I don't know Jane Eyre inside and out. I didn't refresh myself before this pitch. So there's just, again, a certain things where we're repeating things in a way that definitely seem like they're from the original, which makes me think that you are staying too close to the original, which makes me think that you're not stretching your wings as a writer, that by doing this retelling or this recreation, that you feel like you have to kind of follow this too tightly. And again, like a recreation can be anything. I think like Curtis Sittenfeld did Eligible, which was a very modern retelling of Pride and Prejudice not that long ago, maybe five years ago. So that's an example of like a retelling can be as tight or as loose as you want it to be. And I feel like you're sticking too close to the original text based on what I've seen. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Cece? I was just going to point out that to Carly's point, Clueless, right? A fan favorite movie is a retelling of Emma. So really you can do anything just because something is loosely inspired or a retelling or whatever you want to call it. You get to have your own world. And I think that's really freeing. So I think it's really good advice. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, same goes for Bridget Jones's diary as a different take on Pride and Prejudice as well. All right, Cece, let's go to your query letters. Will you read us the first one? Dear Cece, thank you for your podcast. It provides a connection to the business of writing I cannot get enough of. I'm querying you because of your interest in stories of power and underrepresented voices. The Dark Drive is my 115,000 word dual timeline sci-fi thriller that combines the race to commercialize space with a harrowing backstory of immigration. Like combining the novel Los Alamos with Andy Weir, Drive embeds the reader in the Ray Corporation's space industrial complex located 17,000 feet high in the mountain city of La Rinconada, Peru, amidst mystery, sabotage, and revolutionary breakthroughs. 25 years after U.S. immigration tore them from their mother at the Texas border, Guillardo and Garza Ray demonstrate a novel launch system that slashes the price to reach space. After their first manned launch is shot down, the Rays 
ruthlessly seek out their attackers. They also assemble in La Rinconada, a revolutionary team to advance their technology so far forward so fast that no future attack would shake their control over access beyond the earth. The sabotages continue as the grand opening of the Racy's Orbital Hotel nears, and as their brightest hire, Dr. Claire Creer, unveils a revolutionary light-powered engine that could bring the whole solar system within reach. Concurrently, Drive chronicles the race's traumatic childhood migration from the same La Rinconada. Catalyzed by their father's murder over a mining dispute, the boys undertake a journey northward with their mother across South America and through Panama's perilous Darien Gap. They ultimately reach the Texas border. Storylines collide at the final climax as the race's futuristic space ambitions put them on a collision course with the same country that tore them from their mother all those years ago. I was born and raised in Arlington, Virginia, and spent countless childhood days biking down to the Smithsonian's Air and Space Mount Museum to stare in wonder at the planes and rockets. I have an engineering PhD from South Carolina, hold 10 patents, and many technological publications. For 25 years, I collaborated with everyone from Los Alamos to Toyota to research, invent, and manufacture green hydrogen power on the ground and breathable air in space. I won a South Carolina Writers Workshop Scholarship and am currently a member of the West Hartford Fiction Writers Group. My literary goals are to explore futuristic disruptive technologies through fiction populated with a diverse group of characters. I look forward to your response. Sincerely, Dr. Andrew Hogg. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on that? Okay, so this is clocking in at 408 words. Good length. Two quick notes to begin. I am unclear on the setting. Does the present day timeline take place in Peru and the U.S. or just Peru? I'd clarify. I was also confused about the expression shot down in the sentence. Their first manned launch was shut down. When I first read that, I assumed it was metaphorical, meaning like the government shot them down with bureaucracy or whatever. But then there's a line about them ruthlessly going after their attackers. So I thought to myself, well, no, maybe it's literal. Maybe like someone shot them. So I would just clarify. Another note, the plot paragraphs for both timelines are framing the story in a way that's way too big picture. And this is going to be a common thread in both my query letter critiques today. The big goal here is clear. Go to space. The big obstacle here is clear. The launch is attacked. Same with the past timeline. Big goal, get to the US. Big obstacle, the journey. There isn't a lot of specificity and it's not really connected to the individual protagonist's journeys. The two siblings, they feel like one person. It's almost like a package deal situation. All the plot feels like a package deal situation. And I'm almost wondering, why do we need two, right? Like why two brothers? Why? Why do we have two heroes in the story? And I'm assuming the pages have a lot on how each brother is different, on their individual stories, on their individual quests, but that isn't translated here. So I'd work on revising that. And then for the author paragraph, I will share a personal take. It is very much a me situation. This is a story that's centered around the trauma of migration. It informs the past timeline, the present timeline. It is, it is the story's son. Everything rotates around that. Specifically someone trekking from South America, an entire continent, in the hopes of reaching the U.S. border. Again, very central to the story. I would love to see something in the author paragraph about why you are writing the story. My personal view, and it's one that I feel very strongly about, is I do not believe in censorship. So do not get me wrong. Anyone can write about anything, anything they want. I also believe in curation, right? Like as a reader, I want to make sure that I am reading things that speak to me. And have you spent time in Peru? Like what, what is your connection to this? I would love to know so that I could understand why. And if this is something you're not comfortable sharing, that's okay, because it can be something that you share in the agent call if someone is interested in this manuscript. But for me, whenever I see something big like that, something super, super central to the story that does deal with the trauma that I know quite well, I, I have personally worked on many cases pro bono that deal with migration. I am from South America. Now, my trek to the States was completely different. There was no trauma involved. But I know of it. It's not something that I'm that is foreign to me. And so I would like to understand the connection in, in a really curious way, curious and compassionate way. 
Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was in those opening pages and what was your take on them? So we have a timestamp. August 2040, Peru. Garza is watching his brother Guillardo give a speech to millions of people. And in the speech, he says, you thought uh, we were launching a thing into space, but we're not. We we're launching a person, a someone. And then Garza appears and the crowd gasps and he's fully suited. And soon he's breathing liquid, which, which to me sounded super scary, but he was like totally fine breathing liquid because he had training. He knew what he was doing. And he's ready to go to space. And then he does go. And when he's up there, he thinks of his mom and her dream of the stars. And now here he is in the stars. And he's expecting to be orbiting, but then their alarms go off and there's like collision alert, collision alert, an alarm letting him know that there's going to be a collision. And that is what happens in the pages. In terms of my take. So my note here is easy peasy. This is a movie or TV script. Not literally, but like that's what it reads like. There's almost no interiority and no emotionality. On the very last page, when he thinks of his mom and there's it's a tearful, sad moment, that is that is a line that has emotionality, that has interiority, but that is one line on the last page. Before that, he's suited up, he's ready to go to space, he's breathing liquid, for goodness sakes. His brother is watching him, and yet we only get descriptions. I want to be clear. The descriptions are very polished, filled with technical details that show that the author knows what he's talking about. What's missing, though, is character. Interiority and emotionality, they translate to character. It's why I harp on about it all the time, because we connect with character. And sure, we know his name and we know he has a brother, but we need more. When the millions of people are gasping, was it satisfying, as he had hoped it would be? Or is he a shy person who doesn't like attention? Is he picturing the newspaper headline that's going to come out the next day? Is he feeling guilty that his brother doesn't get to go with him because his brother really wanted to go? Or or do they have a competitive relationship and he's happy that he's the one doing it? Or both? Is he thinking of a loved one, perhaps a partner that made him promise to be really careful? And maybe he's thinking to himself, how can I possibly be careful? I'm suited up. I'm going into space. Really, there's nothing he can do, but he'd be having all these complicated emotions. So I guess like all in all, I need interiority and I need emotionality. And Personally, I don't connect if a story doesn't have that. The really sweet line about his mom is a good start, but it's not an active emotion. That is portraying sadness, right? We want active emotions and we want it sprinkled throughout. As humans, we're feeling all the time. It cannot be one line on page five. So I would include these elements, revise these pages. By all means, please keep the great technical description. But yeah, that's my note. Thank you, Cece. All right, let's go to your second query letter. Dear Cece, Mina is growing up in Mumbai when India opens its borders to the world. This is the story of that cataclysmic churn. It is the story of a Muslim girl who grows up as her country loses its innocence. Eyes that gave up their search, a book club novel, complete at 89,540 words, is a story of individual and national change like Jonathan Coe's Bourneville, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's Purple Hibiscus, and Elena Ferrante's Napolitan Quartet. It has won the BPA Pitch Prize of the Darling Act's first page prize and was a finalist at the Page Turner Awards. When 10-year-old Mina, a Muslim girl in Mumbai, watches her sister Shazaz have an arranged marriage, she vows to marry for love or not at all. Luckily for her, everything changes when India opens its borders in 1991. Private television and computers bring in capitalism, money, and ambition. Gandhian values are swept aside, a mosque is broken, and riots erupt in Mumbai. Mina and her family are unhinged. Her best friend ditches her because she's Muslim. Shahaz's marriage is in trouble, and her father's anxiety begins to spiral. Through all of this, Mina continues to cling to her quest for love as she goes to college. Will she succeed in finding love, and will that love be enough to withstand all the change? What happens to love when it meets capitalism? I have been a fan of the shit no one tells you about writing ever since it was recommended on the forum in my Curtis Brown novel writing course. For this book, I would like to speak to you, Cece, because of your love for novels about dysfunctional families and your passion for championing underrepresented narratives that can lead to a cultural conversation. I don't know if my work can contribute in that way, but it was certainly my endeavor. My first novel, Burnt Toast, a women's fiction, was published in India by Rupa Publications in 2011. After a short hiatus, I did a master's in creative writing from Cambridge University, where I won the Michael Holroyd Prize and was placed third in the Louis de Bernier Prize. 
I have been published in the Baron Magazine and the Bangalore Review and was shortlisted for the Magic Oxygen Literary Prize. Originally from Mumbai, I live in London with my partner and two teenagers who take up way too much of my time. Thank you, Sandy K. Verma. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, word count and your take on that. Word count is 406 words. Good length. Almost identical to the previous one. I love that this character's journey is set against a major world event. India opening its borders. That is powerful. That's strong. However, I worry that you're falling prey to a common mistake authors make when writing their query letter, which is to assume that world events are enough to make a fulsome hero's journey. They're not. Right now, the plot points in the query letter, they don't feel connected. It's all these satellite things going on. You don't have the dominoes tipping over effect, which is something I once heard from Bianca and I think is brilliant, right? Like one thing leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another. You want that airtight sequence of events. And what happens to love when it meets capitalism? Your major dramatic question, too big picture. Too big picture. The major dramatic question should be focused on her, on Mina, right? The larger world informs her story, but the larger world is not her story. There's a big difference. Examples of plot points that are connected to her, right? Plot points that I'm going to make up in my head because I obviously don't know. Let's say her parents set a timeline for her to find someone she loves for a love match or else she has to marry someone that their family is choosing. Maybe she does meet a guy, but maybe he doesn't know that she's Muslim. And now that the riots are erupting, being Muslim could be dangerous. And she keeps it a secret for fear that he will shun her like her best friend shunned her. But maybe this guy, for some reason, gets like he has to work with her sister's husband, for example. And then she, her two worlds are in danger of colliding, right? And maybe her sister finds out. Her sister has to decide where her loyalties lie, whether to trust Mina's best judgment, whether to tell her parents. Meanwhile, the clock is ticking. Anyway, this is, again, like obviously silly ideas that probably don't fit your story. Not the point. But this is an example of what a hero's journey should look like in a query letter. The backdrop, the riots, India opening up its borders, that's stuff that's happening against the main hero's journey. The plot in the query letter should be very, very focused on the protagonist. The other events, they'll just inform. Anyway, yes, so that is my note for the query letter. I'm excited to get to the pages. Awesome, Cece, thank you. Okay, what was in those opening pages? The protagonist discovers that her friend's mother had a love marriage. This is like very shocking. So love marriages are not supposed to happen because they're a disrespect. They're an act of disrespect against the father of the family who's supposed to choose your husband, choose your future. And marriages are supposed to be arranged like table setting, like a flower situation. The protagonist tells her sister about the secret and wonders if they too could marry for love. But then she thinks to herself, my sister would never do that because she's a very good girl. She follows the rules. And then all over her posters start going up, right, of movies. And before you didn't have these posters. And she's feeling all the feels towards these movie stars who are very hot, right? Like she's having all these emotions because these people are attractive. And she talks to her friend, the same friend whose mom got married for love, about the posters. But her friend, her friend wears her attraction to these men like clothing, very visible, where she keeps her feelings to herself. She believes in keeping her feelings private. So that's what happened. I love that she's having all the emotions because these people are very attractive. I love it. Okay, so what was your take on that, Cece? I am in love with these pages. I have to contain myself because when I get excited, it's often too much. Okay, the subtlety of the writing. For example, the author is introducing all these characters and not once, not once is it info dumpy, is there name-splaining. Instead, she weaves in emotionality to offer context on each person in a way that feels totally seamless, totally organic. You can't see the, the, you can't see what she's doing. You can only see the effect of what she's doing. It's brilliant. The richness of the interiority. I was inside the mind of a nine-year-old girl. No question about it. The insight into the human condition baked into the pause pebbles. The reason why the protagonist keeps her feelings a secret. The fact that she has already internalized that desire should be kept private because it's fragile, because it can be weaponized against you. It's terrific it's subtle and it's powerful like that is so hard to do right so please please i am actually begging you send me the full manuscript because i'm so excited to read i'm gonna get in touch with the author right away because i'm not going to wait until this episode airs and i'm in love i'm so excited to read more oh and by the way your query letter does not do your pages justice so selfishly i want to tell you not to work on it so i can read your manuscript but i'm not going to do that please improve that query letter your pages are like superb superb 
Amazing. Well, yeah, I think the author there is doing a happy dance somewhere in a grocery store or in the car somewhere. So that's that's always amazing. Right. Thank you, Carly and Cece, for those wonderful critiques. Let's go to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime me- membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is a copywriter and creative director who's worked widely in the fields of technology, medicine, and education. She's an open water swimmer, a rower, and a mother to two pretty amazing daughters. Born in California and most recently from Seattle, she currently lives in London with her husband and her dog, 99. I almost feel like she needs no introduction, but it's my pleasure to welcome Bonnie Gomez. Bonnie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bianca. I'm so pleased to be here. Thanks for the invite. We're thrilled to have you here. I'm a huge fan of your work. Everyone on the podcast is a huge fan of your work. We speak about it constantly. I actually have given two of my own copies away, one to a woman on a flight when I was on my own book tour because I was laughing so much and she was like, what are you reading? And as I finished it, I was like, here, take it. And then I bought other copies. Right. So As we dive in, I want to say that for our listeners, you will look at someone like Bonnie and you will think, oh, wow, overnight success. 
because that's what it looks like, right? But overnight success comes after years and years of hard work and refusing to give up. So Bonnie, I've read somewhere that you had almost 100 rejections on previous works that you were working on before this. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, I am pretty experienced with rejection. I think most writers are. I think most of us get rejected more than accepted. That's just the general rule. So you have to have kind of a tough interior and exterior (laughs) to take the body blows of rejection all the time. But yeah, I wasn't an overnight success. I've been a copywriter for a long time, decades, and I got a lot of chance to practice craft as a copywriter. And that's really what writing is. It's it's practice, unfortunately. And so it doesn't really ever happen, I think, overnight for most of us. But in terms of accepting rejection, it is just part of it. And you have to know that although it, it always does feel personal because it is your personal work, it's not really personal. It's always business. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more on that. And we always say they only win if you give up. So so long as you are constantly refining, making it better, working harder, you're still winning because you're still in the game. Now, you had those 100 rejections on other things. And then with this book, it seems like you wrote three chapters, got the attention of an agent, and then there was this huge bidding war. Could you speak a bit about that? Well, no, I didn't write three chapters. I wrote uh, three quarters of the book. And so... I was really stuck at that point at three quarters. And I think I was stuck. When I think back, I think I was stuck because we all know how bad the querying process is. It's like this walk through hell. You might as well just get a mattress, fill it with nails and lay on it. It's just not fun. And all the guides on the internet that say, you just say this in your letter, that's not what it is at all. There's a lot of luck here in terms of getting someone's attention, but there's also just the fact is agents get a hundred of you every day. So so suddenly just you know putting something else in their inbox is quite hard for them. My story is that I could not finish my book because I had just moved again for the billionth time (laughs) to a new city. And I ended up taking an online course at Curtis Brown called How to Finish Your Novel or Write to the End of Your Novel. My daughter sent me the link and it's just online. And so I did that and I did not finish my novel. I think I wrote another chapter, but it got me out of my slump. And then I ended up doing an in-person course at Curtis Brown Between you and me, I don't think writing courses teach you how to write. They teach you, though, to take yourself seriously as a writer. So I took a three-month course because I didn't know anyone in London, and I was alone, really. My husband was traveling like six weeks at a time. And so I took the course to meet people. We met one night a week for three months, and they've still become, they, they became really good friends of mine. We're still very close. And because of that class, I met my agent because they exposed the agents to the student's writing and she'd seen it and she expressed interest early on and then told me I had to finish it first because that's the golden rule. And I didn't finish it. I told her I'd have it done by a certain date, but she called me well before that date. And she said, you know, basically, I'm just going to sign you now because I really believe in what you've written. So that's really what happened. And believe me, no one was more... (laughs) thrilled than me to know that I didn't have to query. Yeah, that's what we do on this podcast. So we have two agents who are my co-hosts and we have our listeners submit query letters and opening pages and we help critique them so that we can help polish them up before they go out on submission. And as an author myself, I always say I would rather write 10 novels than one query letter. It is just, it is, it is just hideous, the query letter. It's awful. I completely agree with you. The only thing that that vies for a, a spot in most hideous part of writing is also the synopsis. And I slaved over my synopsis. And then it turned out my agent, Felicity, never reads synopses. So it was for nothing. But anyway, I my heart goes out to every writer who's in the querying mode. When I got, I got 98 rejections on a book, It was really long. It was 700 pages. There's another hot tip. Don't write a 700-page novel if you're a debut. No one cares. No one one 
wants to read it. They're positive. You're crazy anyway. You shouldn't have done it, et cetera, et cetera. So that book actually never, ever got read except by one person who only read, I think she read 10,000 words. And, and actually she was very positive about it, but then she basically raked me over the coals for having the audacity to write a 700 page book. At some point you've got to say, you know, she has a point, but there was a a bit of grieving there for a while. <laughs> yeah. In terms of the grieving, we have to do that, right? It's a process. We've got to, for me, it starts with sulking. I sulk first, right? So then I'm sulking and I'm muttering darkly and shaking my fist at the heavens. And then I grieve. And then I'm like, okay, let me get back to it. Luckily, this all happens in the space of a day for me. But for some people, this looks a bit longer. But the important thing is then not to give up. So some other things I want to talk about here is over the last three years, what has been so infuriating for me is this anti-science movement. We've seen it in the past. Then with COVID, it was all these people who have zero qualifications in science, but suddenly they are experts and the conspiracy theorists and science is bad and vaccines are bad, et cetera, et cetera. And then comes this book about a woman chemist. It is a love letter to science and to scientists. And it flourished and it did so damn well. And it gave me such hope for science because if there were this many people picking up your book and reading it, then we were obviously hearing the anti-science people speaking really loudly. But there were enough people out there who loved it enough to love Elizabeth. Yeah, I feel very lucky considering how well it's been received. I, I did think that I'd hear from more science deniers, but in fact, I have not. I mean, I, I hear from people who question some science, but they're not. I, I think it's been really interesting. The book seems to touch conservative people as well as very liberal people, because in the end, I think we all kind of want the same thing. We want to be cured of disease. We want to be safe and happy and secure. And our, our society gets in the way of our progress a lot. <laughs> and I think in terms of when I was writing, I was thinking about these issues and how they continue to play out every day in our society. And at such great cost to all of us. It doesn't matter what you believe in the end, if you have a loved one who's dying of something that they shouldn't have died of in the first place, you really got to rethink your belief system. Also, the idea is that so many people have been held back from participating in science. And so I really want to make that point as well, because even today, women aren't as welcome in science as they should be. Yeah, yeah, 100% with that. And this book is, there is so much in here. There's, there's the misogyny that women are exposed to in the workplace. There is grief. There is working through that. There is this having this infallible belief in yourself and also someone who is just, she's such a thinker, but as well, she's such a doer. If something is broken, she goes out, she fixes it. It's just amazing. And what I've especially loved about this book is normally when I give book suggestions, I really curate them. I will say, oh, this friend likes fantasy. This friend likes rom-coms, etc., etc." My husband reads fantasy. He's reading this book and he loves it. And everyone that I've recommended this book to has loved it. So it has such universal appeal, whereas so many other books are like, okay, well, it's going to be a niche market. What do you think the mass appeal of this book is? Well, I think the mass appeal comes from the fact that all of us feel we all have a little bit of Elizabeth Zod in us and all of us feel like somebody has crossed us <laughs> at some point, man and woman. I mean, we've all been probably run over a few times by people. And these are people who want power or seeking some other, they're on some sort of ego trip or whatever, but you end up being the fall person for these people. It was a real joy to write Elizabeth Zott because to be honest, I was just writing my very own role model. I didn't have to spend a lot of time trying to figure out what she was like because I could just sense what I wanted to be like, more like. And so I kind of went towards that of this woman who never hesitates. She just knows who she is. And she has this certain belief system, which is based on humanism, but also actually based on stoicism, as written by Marcus Aurelius, of self-independence, self-responsibility, logic, science, and courage, actually, is a big part of stoicism. So... Writing her 
became this, this thing that I really enjoyed doing, but I realized how many people all over the world, and I talk to people all over the world nearly every day, and how many of us, men and women, feel the same way about things that have, we're just not making very good progress on a lot of fronts. We are our own worst enemies and we hold each other back for the dumbest reasons. <laughs> so, so having someone like Elizabeth Zott just say, no, I'm not going to do that was great. And to put her in that time period when she really wouldn't have been able to do that was even more fun. Yeah. It's almost like she's that she's the ultimate underdog story. This person who is a woman in science, who is dealing with all of these obstacles, dealing with all of this nonsense, and yet she just keeps coming back. And I also think that's really what's tapping into everyone, because we all feel like an underdog at certain points. Right. Something now that I want to get into is the weeds. Let's let's get into structure and choices that you've made in terms of the novel. So for our listeners, if you if you haven't read the book, I don't know what rock have you been under, but just in case you haven't read the book. So Bonnie begins the first two chapters in 1961. We have this looking back kind of vibe. It's almost an overview of the time period in which Elizabeth finds herself in. And then we go back to 1952, which is when sort of the love story begins, etc., etc. I have a feeling that that is not initially how you structured this novel. I have a feeling that you maybe started with the 1952 and then put those two chapters in, but I could be wrong. Can you speak a bit about why you chose that structure as opposed to just a linear structure where we start in 1952 and we come back to the present day? Oh God, now I'm embarrassed to tell you that is how I started the book. I am a, I know, I did, I just, I wrote that first chapter right after a really, really bad day at work. I was sitting there at work wondering if we'd actually move forward as women in the world. And when I went back to my desk, I started thinking about this other woman, Elizabeth Zott, and I started thinking what her day was like right then. And then I looked back at her life. That's where the structure came from. I, I don't write from an outline, which is another just horrible idea, by the way. But that, that's just how I do it. I, I can't write, even at work, I couldn't use an outline. As soon as I write something in an outline, I won't use it. It's very petulant of me, but that's just how I operate. So no, that is actually the structure that I had. I, it's exactly the way it was when I first wrote it, except for, I think I added one paragraph of setting. <laughs> I love that. I love that you started with that because so much, especially the beginning of novels, is that we start somewhere. For me, I start somewhere and then find out that where I've started is actually chapter eight. And then I have to backpedal like crazy to get back to the beginning. And I also don't write from an outline. I refuse to plot. I refuse to outline. The minute I know where a story is going, I lose all interest in writing it. So I love hearing that someone who's had the kind of success you have has done the same. Do you have a copy, Bonnie, of the book nearby? Because I'd love for you to just read that opening chapter to our listeners. November 1961. Back in 1961, when women wore shirtwaist dresses and joined garden clubs and drove legions of children around in seatbeltless cars without giving it a second thought, back before anyone knew there'd even be a 60s movement, much less one that its participants would spend the next 60 years chronicling, back when the big wars were over and the secret wars had just begun and people were starting to think fresh and believe everything was possible. The 30-year-old mother of Madeline Zott rose before dawn every morning and felt certain of just one thing. Her life was over. That's amazing. It is this all-encompassing paragraph. It gives us a sense of the time, but also from the point of where you are now, looking back at that time. And it's something that we would caution emerging writers, don't do that. Because many of them, it would feel like summary, it would feel dry, it would feel like exposition. And we generally say, immediately immerse us in scene, don't give us this. And then you do this and you blow us away. So for our listeners, every time on the podcast, we are saying, don't go into backstory too soon. Don't begin with exposition. Remember, we saying it from a point of these are the mistakes that we see so many emerging writers make. So we say, try and avoid them. But at the same time, if you're going to do them, do them bloody well like Bonnie did. And feel free to disregard what we tell you. Just do it really, really well. Because that paragraph just grabbed my attention. Something else in terms of the weeds is that Bonnie has used omniscient point of view. And this, again, is something on the podcast that we generally say, 
be careful with it because when we see omniscient point of view, we have constant head hopping. One paragraph, we're in this character's perspective, the next we're in the next other characters, and it gets super confusing. Bonnie has used omniscient. We get into 630's perspective in the middle of other paragraphs. Now, 630 is the dog. Oh my God, I don't think I've ever loved a character as much as I love 630. I love Elizabeth too, but this dog especially. And when you sat down to write, Bonnie, were you going, okay, I'm going to use Omniscient. This is the point of view I've chosen. Or is it something that you fell into as you were busy writing it? So to be honest, but yeah, yeah, I did fall into it. I could write in different styles and that comes from copywriting. But for this, I knew that I needed this omniscient narrator. I needed 10 of them. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, why not go all out? I, as a writer, I think... I'm kind of used to breaking rules. That is also copywriting. You know, you're always doing things that in, in other writing places, they would say, you know, you really shouldn't do that. And I appreciate you telling everybody, don't be afraid to break the rules. Just do it. Make sure you have a reason to do it and do it so that no one, do it in a way that no one can say you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> um, now, I will confess to you that when 630 started having thoughts on the page, I was very concerned about that because I realized that that could be mistaken for magical realism, and I didn't want to put magical realism in the book. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know what? Dogs think, cats think, birds think, everybody has a brain, octopi, they think. In fact, they have nine brains. So the idea that intelligence is only measured by human standards is flat out wrong. We know that. Animals know, know that. I, I wanted to have this perspective from a dog because I thought it would help kind of round us out. Every other character rounds Elizabeth Zod out. They have reactions to her. They hate her. They love her. They respect her. They despise her. Whatever it is, they all have reactions. The dog does too, but the dog has reactions to the rest of us. And the dog is the narrator, the anthropologist of the book who's commenting on us as human beings and bringing in another side of the animal kingdom we don't consider very much. So I decided, you know what? It's not magical realism. Animals think, and he is actually, 630 is actually based on our old dog, Friday, who, who died. But she thought deep thoughts. She also knew an awful lot of words, and we did not teach her those words. She taught herself. She's probably the smartest member of the family. I love that. We had, we had a dog called Wednesday, so, so that immediately makes me go, oh, and I 100% agree on that. But the thing with 630 is, Six City was able to bring a lot of humor to the story. There was already tons of humor. But what I loved is that it took a dog to bring so much humanity to the story because the parts when I was crying were parts that were related to Six City's observations in terms of Elizabeth because we see Elizabeth is she's sort of numb with grief. There's a lot of anger we see in her, but there's this terrible grief and I think that Six City is able to articulate things that Elizabeth is not able to articulate about herself. Six City is able to observe her with this kind of humanity that Elizabeth is not able to tell us herself about what she might be feeling and experiencing, etc. And that's an amazing device. Thank you. I, I really loved writing 630. There's another 630 chapter that didn't make it into the book because they felt like the book was they didn't want to go beyond 400 pages, but that chapter went into a Barnes and Noble edition at the end as extra material. And it's so funny because people will quote that chapter of 630. It's called 630 and the Moms when he teaches himself how to be a parent by watching Mothers in the Park. And people will quote that book all the time on Instagram and other people say, that's not in my book. <laughs> but, you know, I, I really, I really enjoyed writing him. It was, it was a lot of fun, but there was some pushback about him because there was a fear that it would be too whimsical or whatever. And I think instead it's, he's more wisdom oriented. One, I mean, Sarah Winman did it with Still Life, which is also one of my favorite books of the last year. She had the parrot who had all of these thoughts, etc. And she also wrote in Omniscient. And so I kind of view the two together and it worked extremely well for her. And I love that when you say there was pushback, but clearly there was pushback, but you stood your ground. And I think that's something so important with authors. We need to find a balance, right? We need to be able to say, I am open to 
critique. I'm open to suggestions. And often agents, editors, our beta readers will give us something that we are like, that is brilliant. That's amazing. I'm going to change it. But it's just as important when we firmly believe in something that we do stand our ground and push back on that. I am really glad that you said that, Bianca, because I absolutely love my agent. And to be honest, she she wasn't thrilled about the dog and really, really wanted me to kind of go a different direction. She was really worried that it would come off as silly or whatever, but I just felt very strongly about it. We had to go back and forth a lot about that issue. It is really important to realize that you are the owner of your story. You better be open to feedback, though. You better be open to criticism. You cannot be a prima donna in this business. And my agent was the one who gave me the great idea to put more in about MAD. But this whole business, as you know, is very subjective. And so if you really feel in your gut that no matter what this certain thing should be in there, it probably should be in there because you're able in your brain and your heart to develop it fully on the page. Two last things. So on the podcast, we talk about curiosity seeds, planting curiosity seeds, things that you allude to. You don't tell the reader everything. It intrigues them. It keeps them turning pages. And we talk about pause pebbles. These are sentences that as a reader, we get to them and we, we're racing through the story and we just suddenly stop and we're just like, oh, and it's either because the language is so beautiful or because it's a sentiment that somehow resonates with us so much and we've never heard somebody express it in that way. And the great way to see Paul's Pebbles is to look at people's Kindles, to look at where they highlight certain things. And when you go on to Lessons in Chemistry on Goodreads, there are so many quotes. People, I think if somebody's reading this book on Kindle, all they're going to see is all these underlined lines because there's so much wisdom there. And people stop and they go, oh my God, this means something to me. This is this is amazing. So when you write those, were those the kinds of things that you had to keep coming back to and polishing to get the phrasing just right? Or Bonnie, are you just this amazingly wise soul who's able to put these pause pebbles on the page and just make us all just go, oh. I'm incredibly wise, Bianca, so I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, No, what happens is, truthfully, I rewrite everything until the rhythm is right in the sentence because it doesn't matter what you say if you haven't said it correctly. If you haven't said it at least with a, a rhythm or a musicality to it, people won't retain it. They won't enjoy the sentence. They won't read on. Sentences need to feed into each other. They need to connect in a very specific way. But I think for me, rhythm is the main part of it. And then the content, of course, is is really important. And that's just plain old craft. But thank you for for calling that out. I appreciate that. (laughs) And what Bonnie has just said reinforces what I say on the podcast all the time. Writers are made at the line level. It's all great that you have an amazing plot. It's amazing that you have an excellent hook. It's amazing that your characters are super memorable. But if you're not writing well at the line level, you're not probably going to get published. And it's just, it's not up to to speed and it's not going to attract an agent's attention. Bonnie, thank you so, so much for joining us. Our time is up. I could speak to you all day. Thank you. Thank you for this. And, And I know our listeners are going to be incredibly, incredibly inspired. Oh, thank you. I love being here. Thanks so much for the invite. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers? Some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom 
to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers? Some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Lira agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.